What a joy it is to read from the Word of God. Our passage comes from Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It's a single verse, and it's from the Sermon on the Mount, one of the Beatitudes. This is the Word of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. I invite Pastor Sam forward to give us his sermon. At this time, our children, you can make your way to the team kids, if you're in the program. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be able to worship here and to continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be going through the Beatitudes for the next eight weeks or so, taking some very good time to study this most famous sermon of Jesus and looking at how it applies to us uh, as a church. Now, today as we look at the first beatitude, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, this is really quite significant, especially given what our culture's attitude is towards ourselves and our own image compared to the way that we as Christians through the Bible are to look at ourselves, or at least God's assessment um, of us. You know, in uh, 1991, there was a children's book that was published uh, called The Lovables in the Kingdom of Self-Esteem. Now, and inside this book, you can flip it open, and within the first few pages it reads, The gates of the kingdom are opening wide, as you say these words three times with pride. I am lovable, I am lovable, I am lovable, all in capital letters. Now, um, this book was written during the height of what we would call the modern sort of self-esteem movement. It was a massive program that swept through North America in the 80s and 90s, and I'm old enough now to remember, you know, when such things were vogue. A lot of it is still, I would say, uh, in our culture today, but I think our culture is moving a little bit away from self-esteem now towards grit and perseverance, especially when it comes to millennials and so on and people's difficulties with them. So, you know, it was one of those fads, I think, that was all the rage uh, for a particular few decades in North American uh, history. What was interesting was that uh, the movement really advocated that the solution to social problems lay in helping people believe in themselves, uh, boosting their self-esteem. But in 2005, there was an article released in the Scientific Scientific American plus a few other journals um, that showed that there was really little evidence to support the theory that a number of these pundits had put forward despite the decades of money that uh, poured into it, and also the explosive growth in sales of all these self-help books that literally littered the shelves um, of bookstores all across the nation. And the uh, research basically showed that although low self-esteem was correlated with low uh, achievements, there was no proof that it was causal. And what that means, in other words, was that it was more likely, perhaps, that individuals who were high achievers as a result of their high achievements, had natural high self-esteem or views of themselves, and those who didn't have strong achievements naturally viewed themselves lower. It wasn't necessarily the other one led to the other. And part of the oddities that the researchers found was that, in fact, some cases, high self-esteem was actually correlated with worse behavior. For example, a group of criminals who apparently have very high self-esteem, though their conduct is terrible, Dr. Jean Twenge, who is a researcher in this area, a psychologist at the University of San Diego State, has written quite a bit actually on this phenomenon, documenting how this rose in our culture uh, through the English language literature studies. And she wrote that this idea of believe in yourself and anything is possible 
this phrase actually is incredibly modern and doesn't appear in literature really prior to that time in any significant way. She wrote this, these phrases are largely individualistic. They're all very self-focused. And in fact, they're also delusional. Believe in yourself and anything is possible. Nope, it's, not ju it's just not true. This is her, a, a psychologist researcher. Basically, the self-esteem moment that we movement that we take for granted and its mantras and its doctrines that it advocates is a very, very new phenomenon in the timeline of history. Now, I understand why, for a number of these researchers who are examining it and trying to be critical with it, why they also don't like it. And they believe that it attempts, the problem with the movement is that it attempts to offer an extremely simplistic solution to a very complex human problem that has been around for actually thousands of years. And that essential question is this, why on earth are human beings dysfunctional? You know, there is something innately wrong with us. And this is a question that philosophers, poets, musicians, and people have tried to grapple with and solve. The self-help movement is no stranger to that and is just one more attempt to try to offer a simplistic solution to a very difficult problem. You know, sometimes when I talk with people about the gospel and about Christianity, I run into all sorts of people from all sorts of educational backgrounds, some who are very hostile to the Christian faith and some who are very uh, happy to dialogue. In some cases, I've heard people tell me to my face that um, isn't your religion in general, isn't Christianity or even just religion in general actually just a crutch for the weak? And to that, I actually have two responses. And usually I would say yes and no. By yes, I mean that um, if you're saying that Jesus Christ, my faith in him and the God who made all of the universe, if, if he is my divine helper, and a crutch so that I can survive and flourish in this life, I have no problem actually saying that he's a crutch. But I would also say to you, no, as well, because you're making a mistake in saying that, in that crutches actually aren't for weak people. Crutches are for cripples. And my question would be, would you, looking at a person who is a cripple and has to use a crutch because they're badly injured, would you ever laugh at them or mock them? I think most of us understand that the answer is no, that you wouldn't. See, do you know what the human problem actually is? It's not that we're healthy and that what we need is just to believe in ourselves and to be able to take some steps and walk through this life. The Bible's assessment of us is that we're actually spiritually sick and we're not just weak, we're actually spiritual cripples. And what we need to believe, the medicine that we need for our souls, is to believe that we actually can't walk. We can't actually see, despite all the comforts, the intelligence, and the education that we may have. We're spiritual cripples who are actually in need of healing from God, the great physician. And the solution is not self-help, but according to Jesus, the words right here in the way that he opens the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And before we look at our text, which I think will help us understand why, what is the solution to the human problems, I'd like us just to pray. And let's just pray and commit our time to the Lord and ask him to open his word to us. <coughs> Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for providing us with your word. That gives us truth for life. And without it, God, we would be subject to the changes of the ages, the new books that are being sold, the new advocates 
driving forward their theory of God of what is best for humanity and what it means to live a good life. God, every culture and every time period, and even in North America, the decades, God, have all offered a different solution to this. But God, we turn to your timeless word, your word which is true, and your word, God, which sees deep into the human heart, oh God, and speaks to us about what we actually need to change. Father, I ask and I beg, Lord, that you would open our eyes as the psalmist prayed to behold wondrous things from your law and that you would show us the truth about being poor in spirit and finding ultimate joy, God, to living for you and for your kingdom's sake. So, Father, would you help us in this? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, the text that we just read uh, today is the first of eight Beatitudes that uh, open up the Sermon of the Mount. And I know that some of you, especially who've grown up in this culture, are quite familiar with the word Beatitude. But the question is, you might be thinking, is what exactly does that word mean? You know, what does it come from? Now, I suspect actually that some people here might think, as I've been told, that a beatitude is actually a word that should be divided into two. It's a beatitude. In other words, it's the attitude that you should have as a Christian. So these are the beatitudes that you need to be. This is what Christians are. Now, the truth of that is it's not the same. It's an idiosyncrasy of the English language. Uh, it's not the means by which God will bless you so that you get into heaven. Okay. So last week when we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, I showed you as we looked through the whole thing, that when Jesus talks about what the entrance requirements would be in the kingdom of heaven, what does God expect in terms of our conduct? He says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And then he goes on to look at the heart and all these issues, and you realize that if any of you wants to take the Sermon of the Mount and turn it into a moral ladder that you're going to try and climb to reach God, that ladder is not long enough, and you will never make it. Nobody will make the perfection that God requires and will fall far short of his requirements. So no, these beatitudes are not beatitudes that are a means of entrance into the kingdom of God. Okay, We talked about last week that these rather are the ethic of the people who belong to the kingdom of God. Those who are in the kingdom, this is what they will look like. And just for clarification, the eight beatitudes that start off here are not eight different kinds of people. Like some people are peacemakers and others are violent, but because they're pure in heart or because they're merciful, they enter the kingdom of God. No, this is the ethic, the descriptor, eight descriptors of a single kind of person who belong to the kingdom of God. Now, here in Beatitude number one and number eight, we get a clue as to, uh, you know, as, as to why these Beatitudes speak about the kingdom of God. So if you look at Beatitude number one, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of God. And then the last one says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you realize looking at those two things, this idea of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, bookending all of those beatitudes shows us once again, right? That what we're talking about is an ethic or a type or a person that belongs in the kingdom. So it envelopes all that. Now, what does the word beatitude actually mean? Where did we get it from in the English language? Well, actually, it's a translation from the Latin, from the Greek word, uh, makarios. So the Latin word for makarios is beatus, and that's where we get beatitude, right? So it's literally a transliteration of that. And it's a word that carries the idea of, you know, happiness, uh, flourishing, blessing, good things or, or bliss, 
difficult to translate it, I think, just as blessed because what you lose is the component there of that human beings are actually living the way that they should, human flourishing. Normally, when we use the word blessed, we think very narrowly of just divine favor. And now that's part of the word, but it's not just divine favor, but it's the way that human beings are meant to live. What it means to fully live as, hu as a human is to be makarios, okay? at least flourishing under the covenant promises of God. And when you look at what all the Beatitudes offer, what is promised to the people of God, it really is quite remarkable. Comfort for those who are mourning. Those who are meek inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness actually will be satisfied. They get mercy from God. In fact, those who are pure in heart says, you get the privilege of seeing God. I mean, that's an amazing thing. Think about what Moses wanted most of all when God asked him what he wants. He could have asked for a Ferrari, you know, for more money or to even get rid of the people of Israel. But the thing he wanted the most was to see God in the face. I mean, that's an incredible reward that's given to us as believers. We don't think about that perhaps much. Now, if this is the reward that is promised to those who belong to the kingdom of God, and it says those who are blessed are those who are will have the kingdom of heaven. The question for us then is, what does it mean to be an individual who is poor in spirit? You look at it and you say, like, I want the kingdom. How do I know that I'm in? It belongs to those who are poor in spirit. So let me begin first of all by saying what this does not mean, okay? What the poor in spirit is not. Number one, firstly, it's this. It's not about depression, okay? So if you're thinking that, that, that this is talking about de being depressed, you know, that Christians are the most dour sort of people in the world, that is not right, okay? So Jesus is not saying that if you're a depressed person who feels very little will to live, then guess what? The kingdom of heaven belongs to you, okay? So I know that when people look at religion and they look at people who are particularly pious or at the top of their totem pole in their religion, they often think, aha, the people who are suffering the most, those who live completely radically and different in a very strange sort of way, those must be the people who have a heavenly reward. So when it comes to Christianity, they might think, well, the ones who are suffering, like those who dress as monks or they sleep on stone floors, you know, without a blanket, uh, or they never crack a smile in their lives. Those are the real godly and the religious sort of people. You know, the truth is that couldn't be farther from the truth. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great English pre uh, preacher, actually talked about individuals that he had met who had this very stern demeanor about them, thinking that their Christianity was only great if they never smile. He said that they effectively added a new commandment to the Ten Commandments, and that was, thou shalt, not, thou shalt put on a long face on Sunday. And the truth of that is that that's actually demonic and not a biblical picture of how Christians are to live. In fact, Christians are not a bunch of depressed killjoys who are impoverished in spirit. You know, the, 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 the scripture is full of actually commands for Christians to praise and to be joyful. Right, so when you read commands in the Bible, you get stuff like, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of the heart. You know, part about being a Christian is God is so concerned about your joy in Him that He actually commands you to find delight and happiness and joy in Him. You read in other places like the book of Philippians, other letters that Paul wrote, 
throughout the Psalms as well, there's commands all over. Rejoice, sing praise to God, worship Him. Even here in the Sermon on the Mount, when you're suffering, it says rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. So it's all over the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the Bible as well. We are a people who can be thankful in all circumstances because our ultimate treasure is secure in heaven and we don't have to worry that it'll be taken away by thieves or that moth and rust will destroy. It's completely secure. So in the kingdom of God, we are a people who have a hope that can never be taken away by an earthly disaster. And that's why we can always rejoice. So no, this is not about learning to be depressed, okay? If you're depressed, it doesn't make you more holy and more godly or more religious of a person. The second thing that this does not mean, and this is important, is that it does not mean that you are to be a weak-spirited person. Like one of those individuals who has no opinions, who follows the crowd, people tell you to jump, and you just say, how high do you want me to jump? That's not what it means. It does not mean to be a weak-spirited, unopinionated, cowardly person. See, this is not, blessed are the doormats, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, all throughout the New Testament, Christians are actually commended for their courage and their boldness and their strong opinions based on the word of God in the face of opposition from their culture. So for example, you read Acts chapter 5 verses 28 and 29, the Jewish leaders are very upset with the apostles for preaching in the name of Jesus and they actually seize them and they say this, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us speaking about Jesus. And what do the apostles do in this case? What do they say? They could have said, well, I remember the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. I really don't want to die. So we better not preach anymore and be quiet. So no, they don't do that. And instead, driven by their deep convictions about who Jesus is and the resurrection from the dead, they respond instead in verse 29 and say, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, this is really serious because we read later in verse 34 that they weren't happy with this answer at all. And it says they were so enraged with them that they wanted to kill them. So all this to say is that poor in spirit does not mean weak-spirited and cowardly. The New Testament does not support that idea. Okay? So it's not about depression and it's not about being a doormat. What is it then? I think that Psalm 51 in the Old Testament has a clue for us here as to what it means to be poor in spirit. So Psalm 51, if you remember, is David's prayer of repentance for committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband, right? And Psalm 51:17 says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So broken and contrite heart, a heart of supplication before God is a heart that God looks forward to with favor. And this is the same psalm in which David says in verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think and consider what David is saying here. Like how can he say something like this? Like against you only God have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. I mean he killed another man and he took his wife. It's terrible. He received a punishment and a judgment for this afterwards. 
But how can he say something like, against you only God have I sinned? And I think the point here is not that there was no sin against a fellow human being, but rather that David understood that the magnanimity and the greatness and the evil of his crime that was done was ultimately against God and that the crime against God dwarfs anything else that is on this earth. He had scorned the holy king's rules of justice and sanctity of life on this earth. He had spurned that and had chosen to do what was evil in God's sight. See, if Darwinian evolution is true and the human race had really risen because nature is red in tooth and claw and that we are only here because we dominated another species, the question for us is why do we live with any sense of morality at all? What is wrong about the strong taking possessions from the weak and getting ahead over other people who don't deserve? Isn't that just naturally survival of the fittest? I mean, we don't like that intuitively, right? Because I think many of us realize that we are weaker and that the, those who are particularly strong are a small percentage of society. We won't want to be subject to them. So we don't like them. We look for reasons to try to say that's wrong. But it's very difficult to find objective reasons if you don't have an objective law or a standard or an objective lawgiver like God. So what I think David is saying, what is going on here, David is ultimately wrong is because he violated ultimate law. He violated the sovereign king's law. And what he means by this is against you primarily and ultimately, God, have I sinned. That's the nature of sin. It's crime against God first and foremost. Okay? So what does this mean? All this to say is that to be poor in spirit, to be broken or contrite in spirit, it's all the same thing. It, it means to be, have a heart of humility and brokenness and sorrow before the king of all the universe for your ultimate crimes against him. That is your own sin. So a person who is poor in spirit is neither depressed nor a doormat, but one who has actually the courage, the courage to admit their own deficiency and their spiritual bankruptcy before God and to acknowledge complete and utter dependence on him. And this is actually what God looks with favor on, right? Because the Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, I know also that there are some who have tried to interpret this to say that, well, well, in Luke, it says that blessed are the poor. Like maybe, maybe this actually is about blessings for those who are materially impoverished instead. Like you don't have a lot of money. So if you're poor here in Vancouver, which is many of us, right, uh, there's some, I mean, there's some precedent, you know, I mean, for that. The question is that, is that what this is saying? For example, in Psalm 34, verse 6, you read, The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. Okay? And there's many other verses like this that demonstrate God's concern for those who are materially poor, who don't have a law, and they have to place their trust in the Lord. You have other verses, for example, like Proverbs 16, 19, that say, It's better to be of a lowly spirit than with the poor, with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Okay. So, so what you see from this is, okay, what's the relationship between poverty of spirit and economic poverty? I think there actually is one. Like this last verse in the Proverbs that you read, you realize that pride and spoil, that is wealth, often go together, and so do lowly spiritness, or poverty, economic poverty, those two often go together in the scriptures. They're not one and the same, but they are intrinsically linked and related. 
So poverty in the scriptures almost always has spiritual overtones. So oftentimes it's those who are marginalized, those who are materially poor, and who know that they are nothing in the eyes of the world because the world tells them that all the time, who actually have an easier time accepting when God says to them, you're actually nothing in my eyes. They say, well, of course, the world tells me I'm nothing already. It makes only sense that before a great king that I'm nothing, I need your help, right? So when you think that you're something and the whole world tells you that you're fantastic, it's very hard to believe that God has a different opinion of you, right? See, it's no wonder that in Christianity spread like a wildfire amongst the poor of the Roman world. See, but all this to say here is that the concern is primarily understanding that one's own spiritual bankruptcy is what this means to be poor in spirit. And that what God wants for us to be before him is to be truly humble. Humble not just on the outside, but humble on the inside. And that is tough. Now, I say truly humble or true humility because to tell you the truth, pride actually loves to wear the clothing of humility. You know, the English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones told the story once about how he went to preach in this uh, certain town, a location, and a church deacon had been dispatched to go and pick him up. And this guy sees him, and he goes up to him, and he grabs his bag quite forcefully from him and says, and let me carry your bag, and walks with him. And as he's going with him to the car, the man tells him, I'm the deacon in the church, and you know, I'm a mere nobody, a very unimportant man, really. I do not count. I'm not a great man in the church. I am just one of those men who carry the bag for the minister. Now, Jones noted that this man spent the whole car ride talking to him about this, and this man was so anxious for him to know what a humble man that he was, he realized he was actually proud of his humility. You know, it's, it's so easy to do this. We have to be so careful, brothers and sisters, that in our pursuit of Christ-like humility, we don't end up making an idol out of humility. I see this in Asian culture all the time. It's like, your kid's so smart. Oh, yeah, no, it's nothing, it's nothing. I'm like, oh, yeah, my kid is so smart, right? Their kid's so dumb. We do this all the time, right? Right? What you say on the outside doesn't match what's on the inside. And Jesus finds that reprehensible. See, true poverty of spirit, which is commendable in God's eyes, is what we see actually in all the great heroes of the Bible, those who God looked at and puts up to us as examples of the Christian faith. You look at Moses, for instance, when God spoke to him and chose him to go and serve him and said, you will lead my people out of Egypt, all million of them. And Moses looks at him and says, who am I to go to Pharaoh and to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Exodus 3 verse 11, right? He doesn't say to him, and he could have said this, you know, God, that makes a lot of sense. Of course, I'm the only one who is college educated. In fact, I was Egyptian educated. I lived in the palace. If anyone should bring them out, of course it's going to be me. He doesn't say that at all. No sense that he's worthy as well to go and lead all these people out of Egypt. David's the same. David was just a shepherd boy. And then God tells him that I'm going to build a dynasty for you, David. And I'm going to put one of your sons to rule on a throne forever. What do you think of that? And David looks at God and he says, God, who, who am I? Who, who am I? O oh Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David could have said, well, of course it's me. You ever seen another 13-year-old kill a giant with a stone? Nobody else in all of Israel. Of course it's got to be me. 
doesn't say that as well. Think of Peter as well in the New Testament. He fished all night, knew what he was doing in terms of fishing, and Jesus comes up to him and the disciples and says, guys, let your nets down on that side of the net. Jesus, uh, Peter could easily have said, what do you know about fish? I'm a professional fisherman. And instead he says, Lord, at your command, I will let the nets down, and he does. And they pull up this huge load of fish. And when Peter realizes what has just happened, that Jesus is not a fisherman in that sense, but he is some sort of divine individual who can command the very fish, even after he fishes all night and he can't get anything, and he realizes who Jesus is, he falls down before him and says, Depart from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. See, that's what it means to be poor in spirits, to look at God and you say, of all my achievements that everyone looks at in this world and applauds, I'm absolutely nothing in your eyes. I can't compare with majesty and greatness. You know, you know great leaders in this world, some of the best speakers, those who lead companies, those who lead churches, religious leaders and so on, Many of them have magnetic personalities. You look at them and say, wow, you speak really well. How do you memorize stuff like that? How do you have such spiritual insights? You know, the truth of the matter is, when it comes to Christians, the more godly an individual is, the more spirit and power that leader is, the more conscious they actually are of their own deep sense of unworthiness before God. And it's the strangest paradox that when it comes to Christian leadership, it is often those who have the least ambitions for leadership, who are exactly the people who God likes to choose and to pick and to use to serve his people in, their kingdom, in his kingdom. You know, Ambrose was a very well-respected governor, Roman governor, and beloved of the people in the 4th century uh, Roman province. However, when the bishop of Milan, the head of the church there, died, and the church came together to try to elect a new bishop, the church was actually fiercely divided, and they were about to fight. Now, Ambrose, being a faithful governor and very well-loved by the people, came to the church in the hopes that he would be able to make sure there was no bloodshed and there was peace all around and that things would go smoothly. But then, as they were debating this, some little child or something cries out, the stories are difficult to see, cries out, Ambrose for bishop! And then both sides that were fighting with each other look at him and say, yeah, Ambrose for bishop! And they all start cheering and they say, yes, let's elect Ambrose to the bishop. Now, this guy who has no ambitions to be a church leader runs for his life right? And he goes to hide out actually at a friend's house, but the people are absolutely adamant that he was so well-respected, so loved as a Christian, and they say, this man should be our bishop. They convince the emperor to temporarily arrest him, and basically say, unless you're willing to serve, you're going to stay in jail, because we want you to be our church leader. You know, it's quite funny if you think about that, right? Because we could never, that would never fly today. I've never heard of a pastoral search teacher, search team, going up to a pastor and say, you don't want to serve in our church? We want you so badly that we've got friends in the Vancouver Police Department, and we're going to have them arrest you on some charges until you agree to come and serve us. I guess that's real. That's a re you're looking at an image and you say, we really want you. You know, this is God's pattern for those who are poor in spirit, those who want nothing to do with leadership because they have no ambitions in their own heart, but God says, I choose you. I want you to lead because you will take care of my people and you'll serve me. And when you stand up to lead, you'll get out of the way so that you don't block my glory from shining through. You know, we must never think that God wants, it, I mean, I think God wants humble people. He wants people who are submissive to him to serve him. But we must never think that Christian humility or 
having an impoverished spirit for before God means that individuals like that are either ungifted, unintellectual, or untalented. Okay, so if you're a doctor or a lawyer uh, in this church here, or you're a person of prominence, a politician, or some of you I know have more letters behind your name than you have in your name, uh, I just want you to understand that what this is not saying is that you are actually second rate in the kingdom of God, okay? When Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first, it does not mean that just because you have a good job here that you're going to be at the back of the line in heaven. That's not what it means. He's talking about something of the spirit here. You know, the apostle Paul was an incredibly gifted Christian who wrote half of the New Testament. That guy never spent a day with Jesus Christ, never walked on the earth with him, and yet his insight into the scriptures was so deep and profound that Peter says of him in this, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, and count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now, this is really significant when you understand this because even Peter, who had studied at the feet of Jesus, Peter who had walked on water with Jesus, looked at Paul's writings and said, wow, that is some deep theology. It's hard to understand. So you have trouble reading the book of Romans. So did Peter, probably. You know, there are many people who are incredibly gifted in this world. And most of them who are actually know that they are. And the reason they know that they are is because people often tell them that they are. And they admire them for it. But the truth is, those who are admirable in God's eyes, truly admirable in God's eyes, are those who have actually refused to believe their own press. Okay? You know, Paul considered himself as a genius of a man that he was to be the foremost of sinners. And I don't think this is exaggeration. He says, I'm the foremost of all sinners, least worthy to be called an apostle because he says, I persecuted the church of God. I tried to stamp out the only light that humanity has. I'm the worst individual in all the world. I look at that and I go, yeah, that is really bad. You tried to kill the only hope that human beings have for eternal life. You know, Isaiah, for example, was a holy prophet of God, a spokesman to the people of Israel. When he saw God in a vision in Isaiah chapter 6, and the train of God's robe filled the temple and the seraphim were flying around, he looked at God and said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, I am undone. See, that's how godly people who know their God react when they feel God or they see God. See, this is not false humility. You know, when God calls the the one who is poor in spirit to serve him, such as a, uh, a, a, a humble person like that, people who are godly actually tremble before him. And they say, God, who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not me. Why do you pick me? See, the mantra of this world is the exact opposite. Our world says if it was writing a new world version of the Sermon on the Mount, it would begin with this, blessed are the self-confident. We teach people in this world that the way to success is actually to portray an image of who you want to be. You think successful thoughts, you carry yourself with confidence, because if you don't believe in yourself, nobody will. 
Like, I've read this enough. I could write self-help books and sell them. I think I would make money. These Beatitudes actually flip everything on their head. See, God isn't looking for a group of people who put on a brave face and then they trumpet their own strength and their independence. But he's looking for people who are courageous in another way. People who are courageous enough to look at their flaws, to look at their weaknesses, to look at their own inadequacies, and to look at their own dependence on God and say, God, I have nothing apart from you. I need you above all else in life. God is looking for people who are actually honest with themselves. You know, in a job interview, you know, I've been to a bunch of those when I was working in engineering. You ask you questions like, Mr. Chua, how do you view yourself? Where do you see yourself in five years? What good things do you think that you will bring to the company? You know, I've, I've been there and listened to all this stuff. Nobody says in a job interview, quoting from the Bible, well, my view of myself is in sin, my mother conceived me. Or you call me good? What good things will I bring? Nobody is good except God alone. I mean, they'll look at you and they won't know what to do with that simply because unless they know the Bible, they don't know what you're getting at. And they'll just say, okay, okay, thank you for your time. Next. And yet the truth of the matter is that doesn't work in companies. But that's the only way you can approach God. When you interview with God, don't you dare bring any of your own great works or your bank account, your possessions. Say, God, look at all these things that I have. Look what I can do for humanity. And God says, I gave you all of those. How can you brag about that? Your longevity, your life, your education, the parents you have. Did you choose that? I did. How can you brag? The only people who can come before God are people who are willing to empty their hands of all their achievements and say, I have nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. And that's why the world is such a scary place, actually. Because everywhere in the world that you go, you're always being measured. You're always being evaluated. And you always have to keep up a front. You always have to be, in some form or another, something that you actually are not. And if your whole life is invested here in this world, invested in your job, invested in your good looks, invested in your health, whatever it is, you'll lose it one day. You can't keep it forever. You will always be a slave functionally in some form or another to what other people think of you. And you will actually never truly be free. You'll always be the, feel the pressure to be something that you're not. And your concern will be whether you measure up. See, you realize that you're actually measured on everything in this world, this whole world. I know the world says, just be you. I'm like, well, you can just be you, but the world will still judge you. You know, you go to your banker. They want to know how much money you make before they give you a mortgage. They measure you based on the number of figures you have in your bank account. If you have five figures in your bank account, you'll never see the boss. If you have eight figures in your bank account, you can get an interview and a discussion with the CEO tomorrow, right? You go to the university, right? You want to apply for grad school or other places? You're measured based on a number. All your grades added up to another. One little number, a GPA. That will determine where you go and how, what kind of job you're going to get, whether you can do research. In university, it's kind of funny. You're not even called by your name. You're called by your number, right? You see, you're measured by everything in this world. See, did you even know that you're even measured by the water that you flush down the toilet? You know, this I didn't know, actually, until I had a, a very interesting discussion with a friend of mine uh, a really clever guy who works in a small startup company out in the States, and he told me that um, people actually have businesses in which they analyze the amount of wastewater that comes out of your house. And I looked at it and said, why would you do that? 
He said, because it's really interesting. You can actually profile and learn a lot about what goes on inside the house based on how much water comes out of that house. I thought, seriously, tell me more about this. Well, the thing that you learn is that, for example, every time you fill the bathtub, you use a certain amount of water. When you flush the toilet, it gives a certain amount of water. When you wash dishes, there's a certain level of flow down the water. And if you were to actually statistically model this, you can actually map out how many people are in the house, whether they have kids based on the amount of time that um, you know, they use large volumes of water, obviously, to fill a bathtub. You can figure out how many people are in the house. You can figure out when they take a shower. You can even figure out if they have problems sleeping because of the number of times they flush the toilet at nighttime. And that's how you know how many times they've woken up. I said, my goodness, I, I, I'll be careful the next time I flush the toilet because I don't know who's getting that data. And they take that data and they sell it to companies. So you ever wonder why you're on Facebook and you've been struggling to sleep and all of a sudden you get these ads that say, try this new pillow, try this new mattress. It's because some company has read the data from how many times you flush the toilet at night and then told an advertiser that and is trying to sell you a product to help you with that. See, you don't even realize it, but you're measured on everything in this world. The world is about one thing. Whether I can sell you something or whether you can be of benefit to me, you know? And if you're of no benefit to me, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're not interesting to me. See, if you are a Christian and you belong to the kingdom of God, you have entered into the only place in all of the universe where you are not measured to determine your worth. See, the thing that is common to every single person that is in the kingdom of heaven is that you're naturally worthless. Right? You're nothing apart from God. You're just as broken, as defective as the next guy next to you. And it doesn't matter whether he's a billionaire or not. You have the same problem that he does. And the only reason that anybody in the kingdom of heaven is worth anything is because of what Jesus, who is infinitely valuable, has done for you on that cross in paying for your sins and giving you worth. It's not a sense of self-confidence, your personal achievement. That's worth nothing in heaven but because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to die and redeem all sorts of sinners who are dead in their sins and trespasses and to make them his very own children, right? That's why it's so wonderful. You see, what's so beautiful about being in heaven alongside everybody else is because all the poor in spirit, all those who have recognized their own spiritual poverty before God will be there. That's what will be common. It's a level playing field for all of eternity, Everyone is equal. It's the only place where you will be immensely valuable, not because of the image you have to portray for yourself, but because of what God has done for you and making you his child. That's the reason that everyone will have value, right? That's why heaven is going to be a place of peace, because pride will be gone. You can't have pride if you're there because you're a recipient of grace. You know, one of the most motivational, or I should say actually demotivational posters that I ever seen was a macro shot of a picture of McDonald's french fries. And underneath it, the caption reads, potential, in big letters, all in caps. Not everyone gets to be an astronaut when they grow up. And why it's, why it's painfully amusing to look at that demotivational poster is because, in one sense, we all know it's true. When you have 10 people competing for something in a room or in a prize, no matter how you do it, no matter how people run in a race, there will always be somebody who's number one, and there will always be somebody who's number, t- number 10. You know? 
Somebody always has to come in first and somebody always has to come in last. But you know, some people in this world are given 10 talents. Some of you have five talents. Some of you have two. Some of you only have one. And if you're on the bottom end in life, it's a terrible thing to be you, to be the guy who only has one talent where everybody in the world passes you by and you work at the very bottom of society. But you know that in the kingdom of God, how this works is Jesus tells a story about a person who has five talents, makes five talents more. Another person has two coins and makes two coins more. And another one who has one was expected to produce only one more. See, when it comes to the kingdom of God, the way that he responds to them, the one who has five and makes five and the one who makes, has two and makes two, Jesus says to both of them, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. He doesn't look at the one who has two and says, why didn't you make five like the other one did? He looks at the one who only has two, who only made two, but was also a 100% return. and says, I gave you the five, I gave you the two, and all I expected for you was to use them just as I have given them to you. Do what I have called you to do, and you will enter into the joy of your master. Our world just looks at people and says, why don't you have 10? Jesus looks at people and says, this is what I gave you. All I'm asking is that you make good of what I gave to you. It's so different. You see how redeeming Christianity is for people in our world, especially the lonely. You may have only one talent in this world, one talent, and the world looks at you and thinks nothing of you, but Jesus looks at you and says, I know you only have one talent because I gave you that one talent. You use that one talent well, whether it's just sweeping the floor well for me, and I will say to you as well, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. See, Jesus and Christianity gives dignity to all human beings, not by pretending to make them something that they are not, but by ascribing them the dignity and worth that their heavenly Father gives them. And that's why it's so great. That's what it means to be a loved child. I don't rank my children in my house saying, this child has five talents, this child has four, and this poor little child only has one talent. Let me put them into a pecking order. We don't do that in our home. I love each and every one of my children equally because they're my kids. And the same is true when it comes to God. You know, friends, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I would just say to you, you know, free yourself from this rat race and stop killing yourself, trying to build an image, you know, something that you're not just because you're so worried about how you're going to make it in life. Turn your life over to God and say, God, I've been running from you my whole life, tried to make myself something I'm not, but deep down inside, I know I'm not. I know I'm not this. Would you teach me to have the courage to be able to admit that what I need most of all in this life is a poor spirit? Not to be depressed, but to be humble before you. And would you do for me good that I could never hope to do for myself? Would you change me from the inside out and teach me to trust in your son and give me the kingdom that you have promised to all of your children? What you don't need is more money or a bigger house, you know, all these sorts of things. They're all temporary. You can't take them with you when you die. What you need the most of all is a sense, a deep sense of your own spiritual inadequacy before God and to admit that you have no good apart from him. And if you do that before him and repent of your sins, he promises you that he will make you his child and change you like that. See, the gates of the kingdom of self-esteem are actually the wide gates of death. And I ask you, will you not enter that narrow gate instead that leads to life? You know, if you're a believer here, I want to say to you that the most important thing to cultivate in your life is actually a deep sense of your own inadequacy before God. 
And the more you know God and the more you know how unworthy you are to serve Him, the greater of an impact you will make in your community and amongst people around you. The closer you draw close to God, the, the more closely you will see the massive debt that God has forgiven you of. How do you forgive other people who have severely wronged you? By meditating on the great amount of debt that God has forgiven you. How do you deal with anxiety in this life when you're thinking, I don't know how I'm going to make it. Lost my job, my health is poor. You look to the heavens and the birds up there and you realize that if God feeds those things up there and you are of more value than they, can you trust him that he will take care of you? See, the Christian life, the life of those who are, are impoverished in spirit are actually the lives of those who are infinitely rich. My question is, everybody in the world says, be rich and here's the way to do it. Jesus says, here are true riches. These riches will last forever. Will you not come to me and turn your life over to me and let me give you the wealth that money, true wealth that money can never buy? Brothers and sisters, for those of us who are poor in spirit, we have every reason to rejoice because the kingdom of heaven is not just our future inheritance, but is here now. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we of all people in this world have reason to rejoice for all eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for saving our souls and for giving us an incredible hope of life. Father, thank you that the kingdom is open to all and that nobody is ever too poor to enter the kingdom. Father, I just ask for one thing. Help us to know our own poverty more. Help us to know our dependence on you more. And may you get glory, God, as we learn to lean on you and trust in you. We praise you and we thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.